Hi, I'm Drew Beebe, the host of a new podcast from CNN called Great Big Story. It's a show about the curious side of the human experience. And I know that sounds like a lofty idea, but hear me out. Over the course of this show, we'll talk to some of the most interesting people you've ever met, from brilliant code breakers to a couple building their own artificial island. If you're itching for a good story and you're curious like I am, well, I think you might like this show. Give us a listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And good evening, a day of hope as well as uncertainty as the FDA approves the first emergency use of treatment for the coronavirus. Not a cure, but Gilead Sciences uh, Sciences Remdesivir has been shown to reduce mortality rate and duration of illness. Today, Dr. Deborah Burks, a member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, said of the development, I quote, this is our first really positive step forward. We're going to have more on that in just a moment. It's one of several milestones that we want to discuss tonight. This week, the country reached a million cases of the coronavirus, currently more than 1.1 million cases. More than 64,000 people have died in this country. Every day, thousands of more lives are added to that figure. Nevertheless, by this weekend, at least 32 states will have begun to partially reopen. California's Governor Gavin Newsom saying today he is no longer weeks but days away from beginning to lift some restrictions to the state's stay-at-home order. However, just to show you how uncertain the environment is, this afternoon, Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves decided not to go forward with his plan for a partial reopening in the state. He said he reversed himself after the state reported its largest yet increase in new cases. Quoting the governor, this thing is not over. We're not out of the woods yet. What the weeks and months ahead will look like across the nation as these orders are lifted, that we do not know. We know social distancing will still be key. We also know that testing is important. The CDC issued a report today looking back on how the virus spread so quickly through the country. And one key factor the report cited was the lack of widespread testing. Looking forward, the report said that even in the regions of the country with the largest numbers of recorded cases, quote, most persons have not been infected and remain susceptible. On Wednesday, President Trump downplayed the need for large-scale testing. Quoting the president, he said, I don't know that all of that is even necessary. For more on the new CDC report and the news Governor Newsom made today about California reopening, I want to go to Nick Watt in Los Angeles. So uh, what are you learning? What's the latest? Well, Anderson, it was 43 days ago that Governor Newsom told everyone in California to stay home. And now he says we are just days, not weeks, away from him lifting some of those restrictions. Retail and restaurants will probably be the first to open, but as he says, with some serious modifications, which they're working on now. Now, that CDC report you mentioned, interestingly, people are supposed to be using that going forward to inform how we reopen. What they did is they went back to February when we only had 14 cases and they looked at what we did between then and about the beginning of last week to figure out what we did, how we did it, and perhaps what we could have done differently. Limited testing, the continued influx of infected travelers from overseas hotspots and cruise ships, and large events like a conference in Boston, a funeral in Georgia, and Mardi Gras in New Orleans, all fueled the devastating early spread of this virus here in the U.S. This according to a just-released report written by the CDC's principal deputy director. Apparently, flu season also made it hard to detect some early clusters and the early introduction of this virus into nursing homes, meatpacking plants and dense urban areas like New York City accelerated transmission. This virus might circulate among us for another two years, says one new study, until 60 to 70% of us 
are infected. This is going to can be, continue to be a rolling situation throughout the world, not just our country, for these months ahead. So expect many more New Yorks to occur. It's very likely they will. The U.S. death count doubled these past two weeks, and one newly updated model from Northeastern University now suggests 100,000 people in this country will die by midsummer. But this morning in Katy, Texas, a line at Snappy's Cafe and Grill. Today, restaurants, movie theaters and malls can reopen in the state at a quarter capacity. Beginning to see the beaches open, beginning to see guests on the beach. But up in Dallas County yesterday, nearly 180 new cases, the biggest single day spike they've seen since all this began. We're reopening today and it does feel like a bit of a gamble. Partial opening now underway in at least 32 states. But it doesn't appear any of them meet White House guidelines that states have a downward trajectory of documented cases within a 14-day period. There are some states, some cities or what have you, who are looking at that and kind of leapfrogging over the first checkpoint. And I mean, obviously, you could get away with that, but you're making a really significant risk. Meanwhile, with ongoing outbreaks at meat processing plants slowing production, some military commissaries now limiting how much meat shoppers can buy. Down in Florida, they'll start reopening Monday with restaurants and retail. But the state's three largest and hardest hit counties are excluded. I don't know that we're going to be able to open up our beaches uh, really before June. Meanwhile, in Michigan, in the shadow of armed protesters at the Capitol, extended her state's stay-at-home order through May 28th. Yesterday's scene at the Capitol was disturbing, to be quite honest. Swastikas and Confederate flags, nooses and automatic rifles do not represent who we are as Michiganders. Now, Anderson, you mentioned we don't really know what the next few months are going to look like. They're also going to look very different in different places. You know, South Carolina started reopening about 10 days ago. We just heard from Governor Inslee up in Washington state. He's not going to start opening anything until the middle of this month. Interestingly, among the first things he is going to allow, drive-in spiritual services with one family per car. But this is key. He also extended Washington state's stay-home order for another four weeks. Anderson? Mm. Nick Watt. Nick, thanks very much. CNS Chief Medical Correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, joins me now. So, Sanjay, how significant is the FDA's move to allow the widespread emergency use of this drug, uh, remdesivir? I, I think we, we pretty much anticipated this. It's a, it's a significant move because there hasn't been any other medication, uh, anything else that really treats this, this virus, as you know, Anderson. So, uh, what this, this medication shows is, is a proof of concept that something can actually affect this virus. Anderson, you and I were talking, I remember a couple of weeks ago with Magic Johnson about AZT and the idea that when AZT came out, it wasn't the panacea, but it was a, such an important start upon which other medication regimens were then built. My guess is the same thing's going to happen here. Uh, this is going to be maybe a, a particular medication that's, that's complemented by other medications, other medications that may act on other parts of the disease uh, besides the, the, the viral replication itself. So we'll see. But I think this, this EUA or this emergency use authorization was pretty expected, Anderson. So tomorrow, as of tomorrow, there's going to be at least 32 states easing some restrictions somewhat to varying degrees. Dr. Fauci last night told us uh, on our town hall that it was a gamble. How long before we know what the sort of effect of that gamble is in terms of cases? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, that, that, that's the thing, is that um, typically because of the way the testing's done right now, people aren't getting tested until they develop symptoms and, or sometimes uh, not getting tested until they uh, show up in the hospital. So the time period between when someone is, uh, is exposed to this virus and the time they develop symptoms can vary, uh, but it can be up to a couple weeks, uh, as you know. You know, that's where that 14-day incubation period comes from. It can be shorter than that, but you got to count on at least a couple weeks. And then if they're going to go to the hospital, it could be a week after that. And then sadly, if they die, maybe another week after that. So, you know, you're talking uh, when, when you start to look at the, 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 uh, this tragic death count, uh, when it starts to go up, will sort of be a snapshot in time from three to four weeks earlier. Mm. And that's a concern, Anderson, because I think a lot of these states reopen and for the next couple of weeks, they're going to say, you know, look, there's, there's really no change in the overall right. hospitalization or death rates. But we got to keep an eye on that. The, the new report from the CDC about what fueled the spread of the coronavirus, uh, mentioning the lack of, of testing uh, early on, it, it also sort of reminded me what Bill Gates was saying to us last night in the town hall, which is, you know, he, he you know, the White House talks about 200,000 tests uh, available every day. He was saying that's basically a, a phony number uh, because a lot of those tests require, you know, more than uh, you know, two days or so, it's three or four or a week later that you get the results. And by then, essentially, that test is useless because that person has been exposed to a whole bunch of other people. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the question. So it, until we can get these rapid tests uh, up and running and, and make sure they're accurate, because some of those have a very high false negative rate, uh, what do you do with people who just got tested then? Are they basically told to isolate themselves until the test result comes back? It's, it's challenging. That means every time someone just even gets a test, they're two or three days out of the, the workforce, or out of their lives as we, as we reopen the economy. So uh, these tests have got to become um, faster. And, 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 I, and I also think more accurate, Anderson. I think that's one of the things that uh, perhaps doesn't get discussed enough. A 15% false negative rate on a diagnostic test is, is significant. Uh, how do you have the confidence then that I am truly negative and that this is not a false negative? So what else about the, the new CDC re- report kind of stood out to you about what fueled the spread? I, I think this, this sort of these genomic uh, uh, analysis is, is really fascinating. I mean, it gives you an idea of a, a sort of a, a picture now and a story of what exactly happened. When the virus arrived, where did it spread? Not surprisingly spread in areas where there was clusters of people, people in, in nursing homes at large conferences. But you know, Anderson, the virus is largely stable, but it has these little tiny mutations on it. It's kind of like thinking of like a, a family. The fam- you know, all human beings share uh, our, our, a lot of genetic, uh, uh, genetically we're very similar, but then families are slightly different. Uh, what was it about these families? What did we learn about in New York? The virus primarily came from Europe. On the West Coast, it primarily came from China. We realized that the first patient was diagnosed in, on January 21st, confirmed diagnosis on January 21st in Washington. But then six weeks later, we saw a descendant of that same virus that infected that, that first patient infecting other people which meant that the virus had been circulating in Seattle for six weeks out in the community at that point. So these types of, uh, these types of analyses really do tell an important story of, of exactly what the virus did in this country. The, the doctor, the CDC doctor, wrote the report, told the Journal of the American Medical Association, quote, what we do this summer is going to be critical. And that's certainly one of the big unknowns, whether people will resist the urge to go back to full-fledged socializing this summer and the impact that could have. And, and I mean, I, I, again, back yeah. to the idea that it's going to be weeks before 
in a locale, no, the, whether they, they see the impact of that or not, or what the impact is. Yeah, I'm, we, we get the sense of what's happening by looking at the narrative of this virus thus far now over the last few months, uh, of what it's doing, how it's spreading, and it's out there. I mean, I think that's one of the things that really jumps out from the CDC report. The virus is, is the constant in the equation, in the sense that it's still circulating. If we start to go back, we may get a little bit of benefit from the fact that the weather is warmer and more humid, but the vast majority of people in this country are susceptible to this virus. You know, unlike the flu, where even if you didn't get the vaccine, you still might have a little bit of protection because you were exposed to it in years past and the virus changed a bit, but you might still have some protection. You might have protection because a lot of people around you got the flu shot and that gives you some herd immunity. We don't have any of that uh, protection here. So uh, there may be a little bit of benefit from the, from the summer weather, but not enough to counteract mm. what's, uh, what's, what's, what's likely to happen with this virus. Yeah. Sanjay, thanks very much. I want to bring in uh, Tomas Pueyo, okay. an e-learning executive who is, by his own admission, not an epidemiologist, but his writings uh, have been uh, really extraordinarily important uh, over the last weeks and months. His, his post on Medium titled Coronavirus, Why You Must Act Now, was prescient and incredibly influential. I've really uh, learned so much reading all of his writing. It's been viewed tens of millions of times. Tomas Pueyo joins us now. Um, so in your estimation, how much testing is really going to be needed to be able to reopen it to, to whatever degree and to keep the virus at bay? It's, uh, um, it's very hard to do to say exactly, but we have a good sense uh, of that. Um, and by looking at what uh, countries that are successful are doing, you look at South Korea, you look at Taiwan, and the uh, number of tests that they have is 100 for each one of the positive cases, right? Or 100 to 1, 100 to 3, something like that. Uh, we just mentioned uh, 200,000 cases a day, uh, but maybe you need two tests uh, per person because they're not very, um, you can have a lot of confidence. So maybe we're only having 100,000 uh, um, people really tested every day. That compares to 30,000 cases that we have. If you need that ratio to be 1 to 33, 1 to 50, what you need is at least a million people tested, which means at least 2 million tests. So we're, we need 10 times the number of tests that we're doing today. 2 million every day. That's right. With the number of cases that we have now, obviously, now these these, these hopefully these cases are going to be going down, and so the fewer um, people uh, are positive, the fewer tests you need. You, you write also a lot about the speed of testing and how essential that is. I was talking about that with Sanjay. The Bill Gates last night was was essentially saying this two hundred thousand numbers. It's just a phony number because the results just take too long. Without a quick results, there's just so much potential to infect many more people. That's right, and so the, the, you. you uh, most of the contagion happens in the night, in the first few days. You, around the first three, four days, you have pre-symptomatic contagion people who are not even coughing, uh, who don't have fever, that are already transmitting this. And then you also have people who have symptoms, develop symptoms, and they are also mostly uh, um, creating contagions within three, four, five days. If it takes you five days to identify these people, They've already created all the infections that they uh, that they are going to 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 be creating, and so you need the tests to be very quick to uh, isolate the people who are positive, unless obviously you isolate these people even before you know that they're positive or not. But not only that, you also need to uh, contact tracing because the people who don't have symptoms yet, you also need to identify these people and immediately test them and immediately quarantine quarantine them or isolate them if they're if they're positive. So speed is is of the essence. There was a, a research that showed that. If uh, you uh, take three days to 
um, to identify cases and three days to identify their contacts, uh, all of that work was really not doing anything or very little to reduce the, the transmission. Mm. And so really speed is of the essence. You know, obviously there's what would happen in the ideal world and there's what happens in, in reality, in the real world with all its messiness. Uh, just moving forward as things reopen, I mean, I, I can't quite wrap my head around how does a big company, say they have, you know, 5,000 employees, 10,000 employees, if they don't have on-site instant testing or, you know, immediate testing with, with very quick results, 15 minutes or something, how do they, in any confidence, really fully open back up, even with social yeah. distancing? Because if somebody starts coughing in the office and if they can't send that person to immediately get tested, you know, nearby and get a result, uh, you know, how does that even work? Uh, here we're, all, we're going back to the hammer and the dance, right? If you can dance, if you can use the intelligent measures, that's perfect. But if you can't, you're forced to have the heavy economic measures, right? So, so uh, uh, you're right that if we can't be intelligent, we will need to uh, be very stringent uh, with companies. But companies have a lot of things that they can do, right? Uh, the no-brainer is masks. Uh, wearing masks is proven to uh, or, or as science believes uh, as of today, that it can reduce very substantially the transmission rate. If you mandate everybody to be wearing masks, you can uh, have a, a major impact. If you mandate, for example, meetings should not be held with more than a few people. Uh, they should not be held for hours. Uh, people should not be sitting face to face. If you can have screens that um, um, protect people, that split them from other people, all mm. these are measures that are going to be contributing to reducing the transmission rate. And those are the intelligent measures that you can do so that you don't need to pay for the expensive measures. Mm. Tomas Pueyo, again, I really appreciate your writing. Uh, it's been really helpful and, and uh, extraordinary. Thank Congratulations. you. Congratulations. Amazing oh. <laughs> time you're, you're going through. Thank you. Yeah, I'm very lucky. Thank you. Still ahead tonight. More on remdesivir, the new treatment for the coronavirus patients, what it means for those with the disease. Also, how close are we to a vaccine? We'll have more on that. Also later, President Trump and his allies pushing an unsubstantiated theory that the coronavirus escaped from a lab in Wuhan, China. Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright joins me to discuss what we know and what we don't know. Earlier this hour, we mentioned the promising new treatment remdesivir, which may reduce the length of a person's illness. It's not a cure, but uh, it is showing promise as a treatment. President Trump called the drug, quote, a very promising situation. And the makers of remdesivir, Gilead Sciences, say they will donate the equivalent of about 140,000 treatment courses. For more, I want to bring in senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohn. So how unusual is it for the FDA to issue an emergency use authorization? You know, it is unusual, Anderson, because you need to have a real emergency. So, for example, the Zika outbreak of a couple of years ago or 2009 when we had H1N1 flu, that would qualify. Even though this pandemic has been going on for months now, Anderson, this is the first emergency use, youth, use authorization for a treatment for COVID-19. This is, It took us this long to find something that works to be clear, not a blockbuster drug, not a knockout drug. My friend and colleague Sanjay was talking about that just moments ago. Uh, but it does seem to lessen the amount of time that it takes people to recover. Do we know, I mean, how does this work? What, what part of the, the disease is it treating or the virus is it treating? 
Right. So the virus needs certain enzymes in order to replicate, in order to copy itself and continue sort of basically flooding your body. And so this drug basically works on one of those enzymes. It basically deactivates it so that it can't work or that it doesn't work as well so that it doesn't, the virus doesn't replicate as well. Now, again, it doesn't completely conk the virus out because people who took this drug, they still got sick. Some of them sadly still died, but that's the way that it works. Now, what they're hoping is that now that we've figured out that this pathway actually works, this drug did something, can we come up with other drugs that might work even better? And remember, Anderson, this drug was designed for Ebola, and it has it seems to have some effect on COVID. So maybe now that we can design something specifically for COVID, we could do even better. So did it go through all the sort of testing and testing potential side effects for uh, for Ebola? And do we know anything about side effects using it, it as a treatment this time around? You know, it's interesting because when they did when they did it for Ebola, one of the things that they learned, well, they learned that it didn't work for Ebola, but they learned that their that the side effect profile, as it's called in medicine, was really quite good. They did find some concerns about elevated liver enzymes, but that is often very reversible. So the side effect profile is looking good, which I think is one of the reasons why the FDA felt comfortable doing this. Of course, you don't want to harm people, and it looks like this one doesn't harm people. But now that we're about to give it to this huge group of people, you still have to keep an eye on that because we're giving it to such a larger group. There may be rare side effects that might show up. So to answer your question, Anderson, this did not go through the usual rigors of FDA approval. That takes months or even years. In an emergency like this, we don't have that much time. So this was done based on a study of just over a thousand people. Usually we include many more people in these FDA approval clinical trials. In this case, we had the time to do just over a thousand. All right. Elizabeth Cohn. Elizabeth, thanks so much. Doctors uh, that CNN has spoken with are already planning to use remdesivir, including those at Evergreen Health in Kirkland, Washington, which witnessed one of the early outbreaks of the disease. So every patient will receive remdesivir because the first trial, Act 1, showed benefit, shortened the course of illness and almost statistically significantly showed a decrease in mortality, but there was a clear trend uh, towards benefit in in terms of mortality as well. Almost significant reduction statistically, but clinically a a fairly dramatic decrease uh, in mortality. Joining me now is Dr. Lloyd Miner, Dean of the Stanford University School of Medicine, who's been running clinical trials on remdesivir. Dr. Miner, thanks for being with us. As someone who participated in the trials, how, how significant is the FDA's emergency use authorization? Well, thank you, Anderson. It's good to be with you. I think it's quite significant. Uh, It's important to remember that the authorization is for hospitalized patients with moderate to severe uh, consequences of COVID-19 infection. That is, uh, they're either having poor oxygen saturation or they're requiring supplemental oxygen. Uh, So it's very significant in that population. And and as, as you've heard earlier on your program, It could now serve as an anchor drug with other drugs being added in an adaptive clinical trial fashion uh, to look at how the efficacy of the treatment could be improved even more in the inpatient setting. It's not a silver bullet, but it's a it's certainly a step forward. So just in terms of I mean, now the doctors have greenlit this in terms of who can be treated. You talk about being in a hospital setting, somebody who's at home who believes they are sick or worried about getting sick, this is not something they can just go to their doctor, call up their doctor and the doctor will prescribe for them. 
That's correct. It's not. Uh, there's a lot of focus here at Stanford and other centers on outpatient uh, therapies for COVID-19. We have uh, an approved clinical trial for uh, interferon lambda. This is a drug that modulates the immune system and we believe may improve the ability of the immune system to fight off the effects of the virus. We need to find more effective outpatient, well, we need to find an effective or more effective uh, outpatient treatments, because right now we don't have anything in the outpatient setting. And ultimately, we want to be able to keep people out of the hospital, enable them to combat the virus at home and recover well at home without requiring hospitalization. So when um, how is remdesivir um, given? It's, it's a shot, I assume. We're seeing, uh, seeing images of a shot. How quickly does it start to take effect and, and what sort of effects does it have? Have you seen? It's a, an intravenous medication and the, the effects, it, it's not immediate. Uh, it's not as if you give one dose of the medicine and then all of a sudden everything turns around. We did run a trial here showing that a five-day course was as effective as a 10-day course uh, in terms of a number of treatment milestones, but it acts by uh, blocking the replication of the virus. In other words, it, it interferes with the ability of the virus to reproduce itself. And the way this virus causes illness and, and adverse consequences is by taking over the machinery of, of cells and in so doing, interfering with a lot of important body functions, as well as the spread of the virus to other organs as well. Dr. Fauci, you know, warned it's not a, a knockout. And I assume you agree with that, that it's, it does have limitations. Yes, yes, it, it does have limitations. The, the, the trial, the NIH trial, showed that there was a reduction in the time to recovery, about 31 percent reduction in time to recovery. And also there was an indication that perhaps there's an improvement, a lowering of mortality rate, but that did not reach statistical significance. So this is not uh, a drug that you give one dose or two doses and then the drug, the disease goes away. It is reminiscent of the early days, of the treatment of HIV, where the initial drug was AZT. It was certainly better than, than, than any, anything we'd had before because nothing before AZT was effective. But now, of course, we've moved into far more effective therapies for HIV. But if we hadn't had that first step with AZT, we probably wouldn't have gotten to the subsequent steps. Didn't, didn't AZT, though, uh, end up, sort of the people who took it ended up hurt, getting hurt by it? Or, or my, I haven't, my history of it might be a little bit murky, but I, I seem to recall a lot of those people who took it early on had a difficulty uh, actually getting benefits from the, the drug cocktail, which AZT was an important part of later on. That's right. There, there were a lot of mo modifications in treatment profiles, but, you know, early, HIV was coming onto the scene early in my medical career. And I think it's remarkable that over the course of, of the past three decades, we've transformed a disease that had been 100% fatal to now yeah. a disease that's successfully managed and that also we have preventative therapies for. I don't think it's going to take 30 years uh, with SARS-CoV-2. We know a lot more now than we did at the beginning of the HIV epidemic. But just as there wasn't a, an initial treatment in HIV that, that covered everything we needed to cover, we're clearly going to see the same here with remdesivir and SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary HIV now for, you know, the, the generation coming of age now. You know, it's a something that can be avoided altogether. And it's also something that, you know, can be treated and is a chronic condition. Let's hope one day 
this virus uh, has that same sort of, uh, there's a treatment uh, for it as well. Dr. Miner, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Congratulations on the birth of your son. Oh, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Up next, the White House still pressing its claim that China is behind the spread of the coronavirus, even as the intelligence community says it believes the virus was not man-made. We'll have more on that from Jim Acosta in a moment. Trump continues to hint he'll retaliate against China for what he sees as its role in spreading the coronavirus. The United States told reporters today that raising tariffs on Chinese goods is, quote, certainly an option because of what he said was a, quote, bad situation, end quote, all over the world. Keep it in mind, the president is saying this uh, only a day after his own intelligence community rejected the notion that the virus was made in a laboratory. Here's what the Office of the Director of National Intelligence said, and I quote, the intelligence community also concurs with the wide scientific consensus that the COVID-19 virus was not man-made or genetically modified. Talk to Jim Acosta at the White House about that. But first, there is breaking news from there. The administration says it'll stop Dr. Anthony Fauci from testifying on Capitol Hill. So, uh, Jim, let's start there. What is happening with Dr. Yeah. Fauci? Uh, yeah, pretty significant news uh, late on a Friday, Anderson. The White House confirmed uh, earlier this evening that they are going to block Dr. Anthony Fauci from testifying in front of the House Appropriations Committee next week. Keep in mind, all of these lawmakers are coming back to Washington next week. Uh, to hold hearings on all sorts of things. And, uh, you know, some of these lawmakers obviously are, are putting their health at risk, uh, coming back to D.C. in the middle of a pandemic. And Dr. Fauci was going to be asked about a whole host of issues, including on testing. Uh, but according to a White House official we spoke with earlier this evening, they are saying that would be counterproductive for Dr. Fauci to devote his time to doing that. Uh, Anderson, keep in mind, this is the same Dr. Fauci who sat, sat through a bunch of the president's coronavirus task force briefings that sometimes lasted more than two hours. And so the, uh, Dr. Fauci's time was spent in that fashion uh, over the last several weeks. But they can't. Uh, the White House is saying they can't send him up to Capitol Hill to answer questions from lawmakers on something as important as a pandemic. It, there is a contradiction there. No question about it. Um, and, and they control, I mean, they control this sort of thing. He, he, I mean, he has to do what, what the vice president's office says. At this point, yes. Uh, we have not reached any kind of point yet where lawmakers are talking about subpoenaing uh, Dr. Fauci. And I suppose at this point, yes, they, they can block him from going up there and testifying. Uh, we haven't heard the last word on this, obviously. But at this point, it, it sounds as though the White House will be successful in blocking Dr. Fauci from going up there. So I understand you have new reporting about President Trump and, and China. Yeah, Anderson, you recall yesterday when the president was asked whether he had confidence uh, that uh, this, this virus somehow started in a lab in Wuhan, China, and the president said he had confidence in that. Yes, uh, that appeared to contradict a statement from the director of national intelligence yesterday that said they were looking at two different options, one that it started in a lab or that it, it began because of uh, a transmission from animal to human. I talked to a senior administration official about this earlier today who said, wait a minute, there is no contradiction here. Uh, the two are in line with, with one another. Uh, and according to this official, uh, it is the majority belief, it is the belief of the majority of the intelligence community at this point, according to the senior administration official, that it somehow originated in a lab, uh, possibly through a mishap or mistake in uh, handling the virus in the lab. Now, that is according to the senior administration official who cautioned Anderson uh, that there is still very much the possibility that this simply started outside of a lab in a contact between animal and human. 
and they're still investigating that at this point. Uh, but this official tried to say that is why the president was making that statement yesterday. Of course, the investigation continues, and this official was complaining, as other officials have here at the White House, uh, that the Chinese are not letting U.S. investigators into that lab to look into this further. Anderson. Yeah. Uh, Jim Acosta. Jim, thanks very much. Let's get perspective yeah. now from Madeleine Albright, who served as Secretary of State under President Clinton. She's the author of a new book, Hell and Other Destinations. Madam Secretary, thanks for being with us. The president clearly intent on blaming China, saying he's confident the virus started at the Wuhan lab. Lab. Uh, we heard what, uh, what Jim was talking about, uh, what the intelligence community is saying. Clearly, China has not been completely transparent and upfront and uh, even on their death toll. What's your point of view on this? Well, Anderson, before we begin, let's start with something pleasant, uh, which is congratulations on your... <laughs> And if you, you need any advice, please give me a call. So, I will do that. Thank you. Uh, I, I do think that uh, this is all head spinning, frankly, uh, because you get the sense that there is a desire on the part of the administration to have the intelligence community and the scientific community uh, completely bent to what they're trying to prove. And yet they're trying to prove something different every other day. And so having been in a government, I can tell you, uh, that this is uh, something that makes decision-making incredibly complicated and confusing in every way to our own people and to the rest of the world and our adversaries. And so this is a very serious situation, uh, but it can't be handled um, in the way that it's coming together now. It's impossible for even somebody that thinks she understands it uh, to follow it properly. When an administration, any administration has, you know, a, uh, I don't know if the agenda is the right word or just a belief, uh, you know, that China has done something or any country has done something and tasks the intelligence community or sends the message to the intelligence community that they want, you know, information on that. Does does the pressure of what the administration wants filter into the intelligence community? I mean, you know, we certainly a lot of questions were raised about the stove piping of intelligence in the war in Iraq. Well, the truth is it shouldn't. And what is interesting um, is that it is the job of the intelligence community person to come into the situation room when there's a discussion about it and to talk about what is happening without getting involved in policy advice. That is hard. I can understand that. But the whole point is to try to get independent information from the intelligence community. And the same thing is true when the intelligence people go in and brief the president um, every morning, or they used to. And I think that it is uh, very dangerous when the intelligence community is not able to do its job of providing that independent intelligence. The thing I think is fair to say, not all issues are always black and white. And so often the intelligence community provides different scenarios, which I think is important for a decision maker. Uh, but from everything I read, this is much more than that. Uh, really being, having been from the very beginning, kind of dismissing the intelligence community. And this administration, you can't make policy without uh, having a very serious approach to the intelligence and the science. CNN is reporting the administration is formulating a long-term plan to punish China on multiple fronts for the coronavirus pandemic, whether through sanctions or trade policies. I'm wondering the, uh, you know, the, the concerns about that, given, you know, when you look just down the road, if China comes up with a vaccine or we need certain medicines, China manufactures a lot of the pharmaceutical drugs that Americans consume uh, and are, are prescribed by their doctors. 
is is this administration aware or concerned enough about how interconnected we actually are with this country, even though we are at odds with this country on a number of fronts? Well, I think you've put it very clearly in terms of the important aspect if they actually have a vaccine. It would be crazy uh, for us to say we don't want it. Uh, We are interconnected. And I think I can't tell you how many meetings over the years I've been to about what our relationship with China is. And is it a it is a rising power. And how do we deal with it? And it's the art of statecraft to be able to cooperate and compete with a country. And that is where we are with China. So if we punish them in the way that you're talking about, we are punishing ourselves. And so I think it's very short-sighted. I do think Chinese have to explain what happened. There's no question about that. And there are many aspects to this. But at the moment, we need to think about where we are presently and where we're going in the future and to recognize them as a major power that uh, has uh, a lot of control over things. And basically, As the United States steps back from policy, the Chinese are going to fill the vacuum. It's an I know people don't want to hear this. It's a complicated relationship. But I think exactly the way you put the point, supposing they have a vaccine, we're going to punish them and not have it. Also, China, I mean, just in terms of being a rising power, as you're talking about the U.S. stepping back on the stage, I mean, China has been advancing on the international stage. I mean, throughout Africa, China is deeply involved um, you know, throughout much of the world, we've seen uh, the, the rise of, of China, and that only seems to be continuing. Well, absolutely. They have been, and um, they have been waiting to do that. And Xi Jinping is very aggressive on this. The Belt and Road policy, where they are going around, I've been saying the Chinese must be getting very fat because the belt is larger and larger, and they're all over the place. Uh, but partially, it is their agenda, but partially it's because we've stepped back. Um, and uh, uh, the vacuum that has been created uh, leaves them space for it. What I'm very troubled by right now, Anderson, is that Xi Jinping and Trump are pushing each other's nationalism buttons. And that is very dangerous because they're both trying to prove that they're more powerful, that they can punish, that we have total control over each other's policies. We don't. Uh, They require some kind of understanding of the various aspects to it and and changing our minds every five minutes, I think is very confusing to our own people, to our adversaries and to our friends. And we need to have friends in dealing with China as a rising power. Madam Secretary, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Just ahead, as we continue to remember the victims of the pandemic, the story of one family with two deaths, a mother and father, both taken by coronavirus and the family struggle to give them uh, a final resting place. America's getting back to work. In this new economy, your business needs every advantage to succeed. You need to be smart. And smart companies run on the world's number one cloud business system, NetSuite by Oracle. With NetSuite, you'll have visibility and control over every part of your business, your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. It's everything you need, all in one place. Whether you're doing a million in sales or hundreds of millions, NetSuite lets you expertly keep track of every penny. It gives you the agility to compete with anyone, work from anywhere, and run your whole company right from your phone. Over 20,000 companies trust NetSuite to make it happen. Make yours one of them. Learn more by visiting netsuite.com ac360. From there, you can schedule a tour of NetSuite 
and get their free guide, Seven Actions Businesses Need to Take Now. It's chock full of the top strategies executives are using as America reopens for business. Get your free guide and product tour now at netsuite.com slash AC360. There's a story out of uh, California, a situation out of California that we want to tell you about tonight. Richard Hartwig, a Vietnam veteran whose family said he always wanted a military, full military burial, died of coronavirus. A week later, his wife Mercedes also died of coronavirus. They'd been married for 33 years, but by no means is this the end of the story. As with most funerals taking place during the pandemic, nothing is simple, nothing. The Hartwig's daughter, Naomi, is with me now. Naomi, I'm so sorry for the loss that you and your family are going through. Um, what, could you tell me about your parents? What, what, they, what, they, what were they like? Hi. Um, so my parents were two people that were on complete opposites of a spectrum. <laughs> so my dad, um, he was... A serious guy on the outside, but on the inside, like behind closed doors, he was like the typical dad jokester. Like he had his crude sense of humor, uh, sometimes borderline inappropriate. And, um, (laughs) you know, he he dealt with a lot of his emotions with humor and he would laugh at things that most people probably wouldn't laugh at. Um, But that's just kind of like who he was. And then but he was also very introverted. his favorite place to be was home on the couch, you know, watching anything from mash to football to, you know, those ghost catcher mm-hmm. shows. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. And he and was. He met, uh, he met your a, mom. Uh, they were working on an assembly line together. I read at a Memorex factory. Is that true? Is that right? Yes, it was called Tandy. It was for Memorex. And my mom worked at, on an assembly line. And my dad worked as a technician so he would um fix the machinery and things what like was that. she like so that's where they my mom was the complete opposite of that so my mom was extremely extroverted um she would be the life of any party like she loved music she loved to dance um she was from El Salvador and she loved to dance salsa merengue like dancing was like her passion and she loved to be around people. She loved to be, you know, at just big events. And, um, but she was also very, very loving and, um, she loved her kids more than anything. And she never failed to show us, you Mm. know, like she was very affectionate, very loving. Um, and she was just a caring, caring person. I mean, I love the almost every picture. She's either like hugging somebody or or smiling or, uh, you know, with your with your dad or uh, your siblings, you. Um, I know they they wanted to be buried, buried together if that was possible. They died a a week apart. They were in different hospitals, different counties. Um, Yes. And and I know your dad wanted a a military burial as, as he was a Vietnam vet and and, you know, with uh, an honor guard and that you weren't able to, to have that because of coronavirus, right? No, we couldn't. Um, so for the burial, it was very, um, strict. They only allowed us to have 10 people and, um, we had to stand up on this hilltop that was like overlooking the, the whole cemetery. And it was, it was really, really far. So we couldn't see anything really. Um, 
And I think I think we just showed a picture in which somebody's pointing, and I can't even see. What, I, I, I'm guessing that's a shot from the burial, but it, it's I can't even really see what's going on. Right. You yeah, were that no, far we away. Couldn't see we were that far away. Yeah, wow. we couldn't see anything. And finally, um, you know, we got so frustrated that some of us just drove down to see what was going on because we couldn't see anything. And by the time we drove down there, um, the casket had already been lowered and there was nobody there. And we just kind of took it upon ourselves to walk up. And I took um, a picture of kind of like their grave site. So that, that's the picture we just saw, which was once you walked up after after it was done. Wow. Right. Right. And it was just kind of covered with like a piece of wood um, and there was nobody around. And we kind of just hung out there for a couple minutes, you know, um, and then we were uh, asked to leave because we weren't supposed to be down there. So um, was your mom able to, the, was your mom able to be in the casket with, with your dad, with her remain her? Uh, I know she was cremated. Was she be able to be uh, her ashes in the casket? No. So once, um, because the urn and the casket had to be checked in separately, um, they weren't able to put the urn inside the casket beforehand. And then once we got there, they had a policy that we weren't allowed to reopen the casket to put to place the urn inside. Hmm. So top, I believe. Which is obviously, I mean, that's very unusual. Often, you know, you can put... You can put, uh, you know, mementos or something in, in, in the casket of, of your loved one before before they're buried. I'm wondering, I mean, I, and I know other members of your family, I think, are, are also uh, struggling with coronavirus. Is that right? Yeah. So um, my aunt, so my mom's sister, her younger sister, um, who is still in the hospital, but um, thank God they took her, finally took her off of a ventilator a little mm. over a week ago slowly getting better but she has she went into the hospital around the same time my mom did and she was diagnosed with coronavirus and she was on a ventilator for almost three weeks as well oh my gosh and but thank god she's finally starting to get a little better so yeah we were worried well naomi i'm so sorry for for your loss and and also just for um you know that that the final moments were, weren't what you uh, and what they certainly wanted, and I, I hope uh, um, I, I hope I don't know I uh, that's terrible, and I wish I wish it was a different situation. And I'm sorry what you've been through, but I appreciate you talking about Thank it. And I loved hearing about your parents. They sound like an amazing couple. Yeah. They've been, been through a lot. They were they were they were great people, uh-huh. and I'm sad that they left us so soon. But yeah. Well, what a life they had, thank 33 for- years together. Well, thank you. I yeah. appreciate it. A lot, more, a lot more ahead on this Friday night. We're going to talk to Sanjay again, an update on the testing and um, how actor and activist Sean Penn is trying to help ease that road testing. We'll take you to a laboratory to see exactly how far an unprotected cough also travels.